Right, a very good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, uh, ladies and gents, and welcome to the ISACOS webinar series presentation on the assessment and management of version and rotational abnormalities of the femur with FAI. I'm Vikas Kanduja, consultant orthopedic surgeon in Cambridge, UK, and also the chair of the ISACOS Hip and Groin and Thigh Committee. And it's my pleasure to serve as a co-chair for the webinar this evening. Now, we're delighted to be partnering with Isha on this webinar. And my partner in crime, Dr. Peter D'Alessandro, Deputy Chair of the ISACOS Hip and Committee, Hip, Thigh and Groin Committee from Australia, will co-chair the webinar with me this evening. Pete, over to you. Thanks very much, uh, Vikas. Uh, it's uh, great to be here. Um, as Vikas mentioned, I'm a uh, sports orthopedic surgeon from Perth in Western Australia, and we have a wonderful faculty uh, with us here this evening or this morning, depending on where you are, um, who I'd now like to introduce. And each of these faculty members uh, are active with Isakos and Isha. Um, we'll be commencing with Caroline Blakey from the United Kingdom, uh, who will speak on the clinical assessment of femoral malrotation uh, and version and, um, and the evidence uh, behind each of these factors. Uh, we'll then uh, switch across to North America where George Gramatopoulos from Canada uh, will assess the radiological assessment uh, of femoral malrotation and version uh, along with an analysis of the evidence. Um, down uh, to the USA where Bob Bewley uh, is joining us to discuss his decision-making in patients with these uh, abnormalities, and in particular, how he does uh, his femoral osteotomy. Uh, and finally, back to Europe, where Lorenz Buchler from Switzerland will uh, discuss how he does it, uh, his uh, technique for correction of femoral version uh, abnormalities in patients with uh, femoral tabular impingement. Um, as, uh, as always, uh, we'd love as much interaction as possible, and we hope that you'll uh, submit your questions uh, to our faculty, uh, as we'd love to address any issues or any queries that you have. Uh, as much as possible, please uh, use the Zoom Q&A box, uh, where we'll keep a list of questions, which we'll address at the end, and uh, don't use the chat box for that. Uh, the Q&A box uh, will be ideal. Um, at the end of the presentations, uh, as mentioned, we'll have an open discussion forum uh, to answer those questions, uh, where we'll also have some interaction with the faculty as well. Um, but without further ado, uh, Vikas, I'll uh, hand back to you uh, to introduce the topic and uh, set the scene for today's webinar. Uh, thanks very much, Pete, and a big thank you to Isakos, to Isha, and also to all the speakers for actually giving up their time for this webinar. Uh, today. So why are we talking about all this? Firstly, I bring you greetings from our biomedical uh, campus in Cambridge, uh, and we are actually celebrating the coral anniversary, the 35th anniversary of the first hip arthroscopy done uh, in the UK by Ricky Villa. So it would be a delight to host you if you want, ever wanted to visit us. And these are my disclosures, a couple of them being relevant uh, to this talk. So it all started with this paper by Laresh, where basically he points out to the abnormalities of femoral version, which are actually highly prevalent in patients with hip pain who are eligible for hip preservation surgery and severe abnormalities in up to one of six patients, almost 17%, may be having those issues. 
Then we looked into this a bit deeper and recently published this, in fact, in the current uh, edition of BJJ, on the problems that we have with the measurement of femoral uh, antiversion. And up to 10 methods are described on CT scanning in terms of how you actually land up measuring femoral antiversion. And there's a lack of universally accepted definition for the proximal axis, and that has caused a significant amount of confusion. And to add to it, if you look at the outcomes, then again, another paper we published was over one third of the patients with symptomatic femoral tablet impingement, almost 51%, will have abnormalities of femoral version. And this paper comes from uh, HSS, Brian Kelly, where they talk about patients with femoral retroversion will like, experience less improvement than those with normal or increased version. So there are problems with version in all three aspects, in terms of the diagnosis, in terms of how we actually measure this, and in terms of outcomes as well. So this webinar today is dedicated to get experts from around the world to listen to them as to how they assess uh, femoral version, how they manage femoral version, and what are their outcomes. And that's what we'll be doing. So I'll stop there. And uh, that's essentially what we'll be doing over the next hour or so. And I'll hand over to the first speaker, Caroline, to come and actually give a talk. Thanks very much. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Vikas, for inviting me. Uh, my name is Caroline Blakey. I'm a hip surgeon based in Sheffield in the UK. I have no disclosures. So I was asked to talk about femoral malrotation, focusing on the clinical Normative values are difficult because they depend on the population, sex, and perhaps most importantly, where you take your measurements from, as I'm sure we'll hear about later. High femoral version can contribute to patellofemoral problems and to hip instability. It's associated with DDH and capsular laxity. Low femoral version more often seen with cam morphology, impingement, and slipped capital femoral epiphysis. But the opposite can be true, and we see issue of femoral impingement in the presence of high femoral antiversion, and posterior instability and retroversion, for example, in cerebral palsy or in Down syndrome. Axial plane deformities can be associated with pain and potentially with joint degeneration. It's important to understand that what's well tolerated by one individual may be poorly tolerated by another. And the key question really is whether the malrotation is contributing to the patient's symptoms. And that depends on many things, including spinal pelvic alignment, the osseous morphology of the acetabulum and the femur, tibiofemoral alignment in the coronal plane, torsion of the tibia, ligamentous laxity, obesity, physical demands of the patient, and so on. Assessment starts with the history, and it's important to identify if the patient has pain, where that pain is. Is it knee pain? Is it groin pain? Posterior hip pain? Does it have typical features of instability or impingement? Childhood hip disorders are important previous surgery will affect your clinical examination. In my practice, I not infrequently see young patients who've been in and out of clinic with complaints that their legs hurt and they can't localise it more than that. They almost always turn out to be retroverted. So this is the test we're taught in our paediatric attachments as part of assessment of rotational profile. Gage's test. It's also known as Craig's test or trochanteric prominence angle test. The patient is prone. I use my thumb on the back of the trochanter when the trochanter is parallel to the floor, the femoral version can be defined as the angle between the tibia and the vertical. 
but the assessment of femoral erosion and rotational profile needs to be much more comprehensive than simply lying the patient prone and moving their leg around, particularly, as I'll touch on later, the conflicting evidence on the validity, accuracy and reproducibility of, gra of Gage's test in isolation. Femoral torsion impacts the mechanics of the hip joint and of the knee joint as moment arms and muscle lines of action around each joint are altered. Assessment of axial plane deformities requires a thorough clinical examination, including coronal alignment, bearing in mind that valgus at the knee will impact your trochanteric prominence angle test, assessment of gait, considering the patella and foot progression and the impact of any proximal correction on the distal segment, trendelenburg test, patella tracking, assessment of ligamentous laxity. It's all important. Femoral torsion will affect abductor moments arm and moments and can play a role in the snapping hip, instability, impingement and more. And range of movement is really important and we'll go on to talk about that. So just looking at Gage's test then, or the trochanteric prominence angle test, Netter originally described it in 1940. Gage published a study in 1992 where they compared clinical assessment with intraoperative assessment. So interoperatively, they passed K-wires up the true axis of the femoral neck and across the transcondylar axis of the distal femur. And they reported excellent correlation with R values of 0.9 when comparing with their clinical examination of Gage's test. Lots of other papers have looked at it since, and it's difficult because a lot of the literature is taken from patients with cerebral palsy where muscle contracture and hip joint congruity will almost certainly affect examination. Whilst this has been shown to be good intra-rater reliability, inter-rater reliability is pretty poor, presumably because we all choose a slightly different point to measure from. And you need to be mindful that the test will be affected by body habitus of the patient, scarring, ligamentous laxity at the knee and tibiofemoral alignment. There's another paper where they've described using the posterior transcondylar axis clinically to try and eliminate the influence of the medial joint space of the knee. But no one's been able to replicate the results that Gage described. Kerr Graham looked at correlation between Gage's test and CT data, and you can see that the correlation was actually pretty poor. That's the chart on the left. And they, what they did show in the chart on the right is the assessment of the range of movement as a proxy for femoral version is actually better correlated with CT data. So range of movement is really important. Hip internal rotation is thought to introduce a mechanical conflict between the anterolateral femoral neck and the acetabulum external rotation between the GT and the ischium or the femoral head neck junction the posterior acetabulum and so it's important to think about range of movement both in flexion and in the neutral position but we again need to be mindful of deformity ligamentous laxity and pain because they may um, influence our range of movement assessment it's also critical to document the total arc of movement particularly if you're considering derotational osteotomies this is a table from John O'Hara's paper where they looked at CT data of femoral version and compared to range of movement clinically in a large group of patients. Internal rotation in both neutral hip position and 90 degrees of flexion correlated well with the degree of femoral version as measured on CT and conversely negatively correlated with external rotation. But the acetabular version is important and it's the combined femoral and acetabular version that has the largest effect on hip range of movement. And then 
relevance of range of movement findings are corroborated by other authors, including this paper published by John Clahisi, where they also describe using the difference in range of movement at 90 or at neutral as their surrogate ephemeral version. So if you have 80 degrees of internal rotation and 40 degrees of external rotation, your range of movement difference would be 40 degrees, indicating relatively high femoral version. And they've shown good correlation with all range of movement measures except external rotation at 90 degrees, but particularly high correlation when they use this range of movement difference. As with anything, though, other authors haven't shown quite a strong correlation. But these papers are in kids, um, and it's definitely better correlated in neurotypical patients than in the presence of neuromuscular disease. And some of these papers include cerebral palsy patients. So what do we take from all of this? Well, my fellowship supervisor always taught me the importance of building a clinical picture. There's so much room for uncertainty and bias in everything we do, but informed clinical decision-making requires careful history and physical examination, considering the whole patient and not just the femur. Perfect. Thank you very much. I hope um, you can see my screen. My name is George Kamatopoulos. I'm very grateful for the invitation. I'm really honoured um, to be um, uh, with such um, uh, esteemed colleagues, and I look forward to learning from uh, from this webinar. Um, I was asked to talk about the radiological assessment of femoral muscle rotation inversion and the evidence behind it. Uh, Dr. Kanduja already touched uh, on uh, a few very pertinent points. Uh, I have uh, nothing to disclaim really. I receive uh, research support, but nothing pertinent to this particular uh, presentation. I thought it was really important to start by um, talking about a few definitions, especially about torsion, version, and rotation. Um, so torsion is the feature of the osseous geometry, and it really determines, defines the pure anatomy, and in this particular um, case, the actual femur. Version is the act of turning, and it's really the angle of the bone relatively to a plane as you turn. So it's the relative position of the femoral neck relatively to the frontal plane. But you can imagine that even in the presence of a retroversion, if somebody is meant to externally rotate their foot significantly, the femoral neck will eventually be more anterior facing. Lastly, rotation is a motion that occurs about an axis, and it typically describes a joint rather than, uh, than a bone. And this comes from um, a, a book by uh, Tonis a few years ago now, and where he notes that in the Western Hemisphere, antiversion is used probably inaccurately instead of antitorsion. Now, obviously, antiversion is um, how um, we've, we're going to talk about for the rest of the presentation, and I apologize for the most uh, purest amongst you. But I thought uh, the objectives of, uh, of the next few minutes will be the following. How do we assess femoral version? What is normal femoral version? How is femoral version reported to date? And what is their effect and outcome touching on those uh, to, to talk about the evidence? So there are two ways of assessing uh, femoral version. One can do the two-dimensional uh, way, and uh, in the two-dimensional um, uh, way, the, the femur has to be segmented, and according to the segmentation, um, you can then determine the relative uh, positions of, um, of the condyles and uh, the femoral neck. However, that is quite a laborious process and not uh, commonly used. The second way would be to obtain two different slices, so two two-dimensional slices, and obtain mostly do in, in our practice. Now, if we were to look at um, the distal angle, there are different ways of measuring distal angle. 
one can use the um, the bisecting uh, condylar axis, one could use the epicondylar axis, and one could use the posterior condylar axis. If you are to use the posterior condylar axis, that is the one that is the one that is uh, the most commonly used in uh, in 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 orthopedics and how we typically use it. It's also the one that's the most uh, the most commonly used and also has the greatest reliability when we've recently tested it. Next is about the proximal angle. Now, if one is uh, is doing a tall hip replacement and wants to assess the version for a hip replacement, then it's relatively easy to determine the axis through the proximal stem, in this situation is eight degrees, and then through the posterior condylar axis, and in this situation, the femoral version is 21 degrees. However, in the proximal angle, this becomes slightly different because as you can see from the images from the left all the way to the right, the morphology of the proximal femur changes significantly. And you, one could imagine that you could fit a line through the head, neck, and proximal femur uh, on the left, but as you move towards the right, fitting a line through a, a curvaceous um, morphology can be quite tricky. And in actual fact, if you were to look in the literature, there can be at least 15 different ways of measurements, uh, with uh, two of them uh, being three-dimensional, so they definitely require segmentations, but the remaining of them um, are uh, relying on two two-dimensional images. And really, I'm not going to go through all of these, so um, there's no need to panic. However, what I would like uh, to show is that um, according to um, this slide, you can see that um, the, according to the characterization, the proximal point can vary according to what uh, technique you use, and also the distal point can vary. And there, the proximal point can be the femoral head center, the neck axis, the head-neck axis, and the shaft, whilst the distal point could be the neck base, the neck GT junction, the greater trochanter center, or the edge of the trochanter or the neck axis. And there can be a various combinations leading to all these uh, problems. Let's, however, see um, what happens um, with different examples on a three-dimensional picture. So here you can see the, the femur, the proximal femur on the AP uh, and, uh, the, and uh, the axial view. Now, if we are to use a three-dimensional um, three uh, segmentation and we were to look at along the neck and uh, different slices to identify the center of rotation, you will see where the center of, of rotation is. And we have uh, in this slide outlined the neck. If one was to use one of the common, one of the most common methods used is the Rikeras, you will see that the point uh, is relatively similar to the Sugano point, which is the center of the of uh, the um, of the of the centroids. However, if one was to use these three points, one is the the point by Lee, which is very proximal, and it's it's out the version is outlined on the axial uh, slice by red. The Rakeras, which with this, which would, would be the, the green, and the Murphy would be the violet or the lilac. You would see that according to the level of the point on along the neck, the femoral version can change significantly. And having bear, bearing that in mind, let's have a look at how close measurements can be. A, a cardinal study was that performed by, um, by uh, Casseretar. And what these, uh, these authors did is they took a, a, a cadaver of so 50 femurs, 
and they had various observers, um, four observers at various intervals, and they measured different angles along the different axes. What is important to note uh, in this uh, box and whiskers plot, you will see that the version varied significantly uh, amongst the different groups. However, if you were to look at how much the, the variability was, that was up to 11 degrees differences between um, two of the methods, the, the one of the most proximal and the one uh, most distal. And that is quite a significant number. Similar study was performed by the Bernese group. And this, once again, about 50 hips, two observers and slightly different methods, and they measured uh, at three different intervals. Once again, the, the, the femoral version measurements varied significantly. This time around, it varied anything between 11 degrees with, uh, uh, with the more proximal reading up to 28 degrees with the most distal reading. So if we were, and then what the Bernese group also did is they looked at the difference in the, in, the, in the values and how this correlated with the actual version itself. And what they found was the greater the version, the greater the difference between the two values. So this, um, this difference can propagate even further. Now, if we were to put these two papers together, then you can see I've highlighted two methods uh, that are used in both papers. But you can see in these two studies, there are nine different techniques measured. And of course, as mentioned, there are more than nine. And the difference in values can be anything up to 17 degrees. What that means to me is that if we're comparing different, different, um, different studies, we're probably comparing apples with oranges. And in actual fact, we're not speaking a universal languages. There is a, there's a lot of different languages in, in most of the papers that we read. Let's look about a little bit about the potential source of errors. Now, if, if these er errors can be observer-related, and uh, the study by Kaiser looked at the possibility of observer-related uh, errors, and they found that, in actual fact, observers can be quite good at getting the measurements right within one or two degrees uh, for the various parameters, and that was the greatest difference. So I would say that's pretty acceptable. Another part that could interfere with the measurements is what's the relative position of the femur. And this is a study that was published in the American Journal of Radiology. And uh, what the authors did is they, they moved uh, the femur, the cadaveric femurs in different positions of various degrees of flexion, extension, abduction, and adduction. And what they found was that when the femur was extended, then the measurement of femoral version increased. When the femur was flexed, the, the measurement of femoral version reduced. Adduction and abduction had minimal effect compared to flexion and extension. And this is something that important to bear in mind, especially if measure, version measurements are taking place in different positions, especially standing. We've already touched a little bit of, about um, the, what is normal, but I'd like to, to talk about it just, uh, just a little bit uh, more, if you don't mind. Now, the definition of normal is between 10 to 25 degrees of femoral version. Normal was defined by Tonis, but if one looks into, into this paper a little bit uh, in, with greater detail, they evaluated 180 hips, that some of them were skeletally mature or skiffies. In the tables, they clearly say that they made assumption of what normal and, uh, and abnormal in terms of increase and decrease was. And in actual fact, very small numbers had normal. In, in their paper, it was only three out of 180. So I would say that this is um, very, um, this is extremely low. Now, how, how often do we encounter normal? This paper has already been quoted in the webinar and already discussed that about one in six patients have some form of severe version abnormalities. 
What I find interesting, however, is that 70% of patients have normal acetabulum, whilst less than half have actually normal femoral version. And therefore, in my opinion, we probably have to consider what normal version is and what and how to measure it. If there was a, a very interesting study performed uh, quite a few years ago now in Germany, where they look at healthy volunteers and those with unilateral trauma. And th these patients all had CT scans and they, they obtained a large number of scans and they determined the difference between the sides and what the version was amongst asymptomatic individuals. They used the method of, um, of uh, Weidlich, which generally gives a greater value than the other measures. However, the mean value was 25 degrees almost with a standard deviation of 17. That would mean that the normal is anything between seven or normal according to epidemiologists epidemiologi will be anything between seven to 42 with a 35 degree range and not what the 15 degree range that we conventionally use. And what was also interesting is that the mean difference between size was about four degrees. And any difference more, greater than 15 degrees would be considered pathological. Any difference less than that would not be considered pathological. Within our cohort, we see similar characteristics with only, if we were to use 10 to 25 degrees of, um, of normality, a large number of acetabulum fall within the, such normalities, not many femurs according to Murphy and not many femurs according to our Rakeras. So, so I suspect those boundaries have to be expanded. But let's look at how versions are reported to date. If we are to look at the arthroscopic literature, and these are centers, these are, well, these are famous uh, uh, surgeons from, from big centers that do high volumes. Uh, the group from Chicago mentions that a line is drawn through the center of the femoral neck on the oblique axis. Um, the group by Mark Philippon says that the true femoral uh, neck axis was visualized using an oblique axial skeleton using the gyric method and accounts for the femoral head center. New York, the group from New York and Brian Kelly says they use the oblique axis along the neck from the center to the base. So they don't account for anything proximal. So this is, these are quite, quite different measurements that one would obtain. Looking at the femoral osteotomy literature, these are three studies that are quoted. Uh, Dr. Bully that we're gonna hear from a, a bit later and I look forward to his talk, talks about the Murphy method. Um, Hal Martin talks about the Rakeras method and the group from Canada talks about the Weiner method. So once again, very variable. Version and outcomes, um, there are systematic reviews that show that retroversion may be associated with reduced outcome. However, there's unequivocal data High version could be associated with a high with reduced outcome, but that is probably linked with the presence of dysplasia. And again, the limitations of all of all uh, the systematic reviews has been that has been a wide range of measurement methods, and it's really hard to consider what's normal not accounting for the acetabulum. In my opinion, and this is a personal opinion and therefore associated with significant bias, if one is to consider impingement uh, for the presence of a CAM FAI or retroversion. The Rikeras makes more sense to use because it correlates with the Sugano, so it looks at the proximal femoral head neck anatomy, and it it sort of can allow for modeling of uh, of femoral stabular impingement and, and what takes place in the anterior head neck junction. If you are to look at instability and total hip replacement, the Murphy method makes more sense because it provides more information about the physiological uh, conditions and uh, the musculature and all the angles between the, uh, the pelvis and the femur and gives you more information about the dynamics. So in conclusion, I think it's really hard to fit a line through a funny curve and therefore it's really hard to assess femoral version. There are many different two-dimensional ways but all provide different values. 15 degrees range is too small and we probably need to uh, increase what the range is if we were to talk about different treatments. 
but we also always have to account for the individual. Uh, to date, femoral version is not standardized and everyone reports it differently. And we definitely need to create a universal language as there's to date little evidence of whether it has an effect. I think this paper is a must for anyone interested in the study and I have to congratulate Dr. Kandujas for it. Thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, greetings from New York where it's late afternoon and uh, already starting to get dark here as we approach winter. Thanks for allowing me to participate in this very interesting topic that's got a lot of buzz and uh, becoming uh, much more popular. Um, I'm going to try to discuss this uh, tough topic in about 10 minutes. When we've looked at series of uh, or articles that are reported on the etiology of osteoarthritis, we were always aware that the main culprits were various types of dysplasia or hip impingement. And version was very rarely talked about. So often it may not be a surprise um, when surgery is done and a hip scope or an osteotomy has not succeeded. And so it's, it's critically important to make the correct diagnosis. And it was amazing how often malrotation is often missed or ignored, even with some very well-known hip preservation surgeons uh, uh, disclosing this to me over the years. And so it may not be a surprise as um, uh, this kind of case, 36-year-old female underwent four hip arthroscopies, still in severe pain. The next surgery that was being proposed was labral transplants in both hips, and she had undiagnosed femoral retroversion. And we treated her with derotation osteotomies, and she was so thrilled, and she told us that you really changed my life. So why is femoral, why is excessive femoral antiversion harmful? It's really a type of uh, anterior dysplasia. So why is excessive femoral antiversion harmful? Um, it, it really can be considered like a type of anterior dysplasia. On this 3D CT scan, we call this the too much femoral head showing sign. And it really causes a lot of destruction in the anterior part of the joint to the labrum and the articular cartilage. And in addition to the damage we see inside the joint, um, it can also cause ischiofemoral impingement, um, patellomel tracking, psoas pain as the psoas is trying to stabilize the joint, weak abductors from the decreased offset. Then if untreated, eventually osteoarthritis. <clears throat> what about femoral retroversion? Why is it harmful? Well, it's, it's one of the flavors of hip impingement and it has a very significant effect upon the range of motion. So in addition to the damage to the labrum and cartilage that we see with femoral retroversion from the impingement, it also causes limited hip flexion and internal rotation. This can cause athletic pubalgia, may cause pubic symphysis arthritis, lumbar spine arthritis and pain, then also eventually hip osteoarthritis if untreated. This paper's already been mentioned twice by Lurch, a, a very remarkable study in patients, pain, patients with painful hips with either impingement or dysplasia. Only one third of these patients had normal femoral and acetabular version, and over half had abnormal femoral version. 
in the decision making, if the next shaft angle is abnormal with either coxa valga or coxa vera, along with the malrotation, then you may want to do some type of intertrochanteric osteotomy, as in this young lady here, with a next shaft angle of only 114 degrees, a short leg, but 54 degrees of femoral antiversion. And you can see on her 3D model there, a lot of hip pain, a lot of ischiofemoral impingement as well. She was treated successfully with a valgus derotation osteotomy. If there is coexisting acetabular dysplasia that's uh, significant along with the derotate, along with the version abnormality, it may not be sufficient to do one or the other. And in uh, some cases, we'll combine this and do both uh, at the same time. What about the role of hip arthroscopy in treating these patients? Well, hip arthroscopy can be used to access, to access the central compartment, take care of any cartilage or labral abnormalities. If there's coexisting femoral retroversion along with um, a cam lesion or pincer lesion, you may want to try arthroscopy first before going on to a bigger procedure. Or if you're going to do a retroverting osteotomy and there's a cam lesion, you may want to take that down as well so it doesn't cause symptomatic impingement after you rotate the femur. But it's important to realize that arthroscopy does not correct the rotational deformity, obviously. So what about the situation where you have cam uh, impingement along with femoral retroversion? How low can you go? Should you try a scope? When should you go directly to a derotation osteotomy or do both? Well, in this 39-year-old uh, uh, male with a large cam lesion in the 70s in both hips, femoral retroversion of minus 15 and minus two, we went conservative and tried the arthroscopy first and uh, did a nice debridement along the femoral neck. And he did well for about two years. But as this study by uh, Matt Krautler shows, Femoral retroversion has a much greater effect upon the loss of internal rotation than does the cam lesion, which tends to affect flexion more. So after two years, his hip pain returned. He still lacked internal rotation, and he was treated successfully with staged derotation osteotomies. Now, this may be a situation where artificial intelligence feeding everything in may help us decide which patients might do well with just an arthroscopic procedure to start. In some cases, we will do 3D motion analysis as shown here. And if we combine one, two, or three surgical procedures, what effect does that have on the range of motion, giving us a, a little bit more of a, a understanding as to what needs to be done. Okay, so if the femur must be rotated, what are, what are the choices? Uh, external fixation, I guess, could be used. It's used here occasionally on the tibia, but none of us really using it on the femur. Then that leaves plating and intramedullary nailing. I know a lot of hip-preserving surgeons prefer to do it plate, uh, prefer to use plating, so <clears throat> it doesn't affect the abductors at all. But it does require a much bigger surgical exposure with elevation of the muscle. With uh, our technique, uh, much less invasive, cutting the uh, femur from inside the canal, and some of the incisions can be pretty small and hard to differentiate from our arthroscopy incisions. The technique I use is to first ream the femur, 
uh, in preparation for the IM nail and the intramedullary bone saw. <clears throat> Steinman pins are placed proximal and distal to the osteotomy in the desired degree of uh, rotational correction. Uh, what's normal, that's, that's a tough one to figure out. We consider about 15 degrees to be in the neighborhood of normal. The osteotomy is then done in a closed fashion with the saw and then rotating the femur and keeping um, the pins, uh, inserting the nail while maintaining rotational correction. Yep. Um, we prefer to do this on a, uh, on a flat uh, fluoroscopic table uh, without traction with the leg draped free. This allows us to control range of motion before and after the osteotomy to make sure we've done an ad adequate correction. Uh, we like to use these uh, triangles uh, from Synthes. Um, again, placing the pin above and below in the desired amount of correction, whether it's 15, 20, 25, 30 degrees of correction, rarely more than that. One technique tip is to place the proximal pin in the femur while the reamer is in place. This prevents the proximal pin from blocking the canal. And then um, looking proximally from the foot, we fit these triangles within the two pins to give us an estimation of how much correction is going to, to occur. This shows the intramedullary saw, pretty cool device devised by Bob Winquist and an um, engineer from Boeing. And the fluoroscopic image is shown here by gradually expanding the saw. We're able to do a transverse osteotomy in a closed fashion. And then looking from the foot, rotating the pins, keeping them parallel. This is much easier than putting the pins in parallel and then constantly trying to look at your, your correction. The, uh, it's easier to set that first and then keep the pins parallel. Visually, it's much easier. Another technique tip, we save the reamings and we will deliver them to the osteotomy site using the nozzle of a cement gun. And that really helps to uh, enhance the healing. You can use the, you can put in the distal interlock using perfect circles technique. We use this navigation from the system I use and it's uh, usually much quicker to do that way. Then you wanna insert a intramedullary nail, if possible, locked dynamically. By doing this, we allow uh, the patients to undergo full weight bearing after surgery and we can see dynamic compression at the osteotomy site. And it's pretty cool to see this afterwards, how you see the femur, the, the femoral nail migrate distally on the uh, distal interlock. We try to insert through the trochanteric bald spot as described by Dean Lorich, trying to minimize any damage to the abductors. I've used this technique since 1997. I've done 239 to date. About two thirds of these are antiverted and about one third are retroverted. We've performed concomitant hip arthroscopy in 21%. Many of these had arthroscopy done before the osteotomy. A concomitant tibial osteotomy for external tibial torsion in about 9% of patients. And these were all antiverted cases and a PAO in about 6% of cases. When we first reported our series on the first 55 cases, we found that the Harris HIP score improved significantly um, with 93% having a good or excellent outcome. 
problems we've had with the procedure. We have excellent 100% follow-up, three total hips in two patients. And these uh, were in patients with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and Prader-Willi syndrome. We've had five non-unions, three were rotted, two were plated. These were all EDS patients. Three delayed unions treated with dynamizing the rod and adding bone marrow aspirate. Two of the three were Ehlers-Danlos. If, if we exclude those two conditions and consider failures a hip replacement, we had all of these go on to survival. This shows the technique here. Um, <clears throat> not much healing at seven months, taking the BMAC aspiration, taking out the distal screw, and then six months later, good healing. Another case in a 325-pound patient, not much happening at six months, same technique, and good healing at seven months. Some of these EDS patients, patients can be really tough to manage. This is one with excessive antiversion. We rotted, we re-rotted, bone grafted, second rotting failed. Dave Helfett, one of my partners, trauma surgeon, uh, did double plating, and that finally worked. So when it came time to her second side, he said, well, let's just go with plating. Well, that failed. A second plating, bigger plates failed. Rotting was tried, that failed. And finally, the third double plating with bone grafting achieved success. Another technique tip for removing the rod, I don't use an end cap. In removing it, I insert the guide wire and ACL reamers come in very handy to remove any overlying bone, and that helps to minimize the risk of any trochanteric avulsion. And then we'll place uh, strips of bone graft material into the proximal canal. So in summary, it's very important to make the correct diagnosis um, it's, and check a version of the acetabulum and femur. Try to correct all anatomic deformities if possible. Intramedullary rotting, extremely stable. It's nice to allow uh, full weight bearing. Um, try to bone graft if possible. Beware of patients with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Minimally invasive, the osteotomy site remains closed. Easier hardware removal than removing a large plate from the proximal femur. I only have one case of persistent abductor limp and it was in a patient that had a previous benign tumor removed from her gluteus media, uh, medius. So, and derotation can be achieved easily and safely with excellent results. Thank you very much for your attention. Bob, thanks very much. That uh, was brilliant. Intra love the intramedullary sore. Um, we're now going to uh, finish off with our final speaker back across the Atlantic uh, to Lorenz Buchler from uh, Switzerland who will discuss uh, how he uh, performs uh, uh, correction of uh, femoral version and rotation in patients with FAI. Um, welcome from Bern, Switzerland. Here it's already dark at night. <laughs> Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I have nothing to disclose relevant to this talk. So I'll talk a little bit how uh, we would uh, perform these uh, osteotomies or treat these patients. Um, doesn't work. There we go. So now we've been talking a lot about this paper from Bern. Uh, I think it's a very, very important paper. First, to realize that we still have a lot of patients that come with a fairly normal anatomy with femoral torsion and acetabular version, but we have a significant amount of patients 
that will show either an increased femoral torsion or a decreased femoral torsion. Uh, what not really has been discussed about this patient uh, paper and what is very relevant is that the acetabular version is, is relevant in discussing how actually we have to treat these patients. You will see patients with an increased femoral torsion and the acetabular retroversion, or you will have patients with acetabular antiversion. This will make a huge difference in how actually these patients will become systematic. So it's very important not only to look at the femur, but also to look at the acetabulum. Um, so if we have patients with an increased uh, femoral torsion, the range of motion will be an excessive internal rotation and a decreased external rotation. And this will be very much aggravated by a, by a decreased offset in valgus hips. The patient usually presents with a positive posterior impingement test, but also with a positive anterior impingement test. And this is a big risk for a wrong diagnosis that may think the patient will present with an anterior impingement, but actually the problem is an increased femoral torsion. The impingement acts as most commonly an extra-articular ischiofemoral impingement, reducing the range of motion. So in treating these patients, it's really very important to do a thorough radiographic evaluation to measure the CCD angle and also to uh, consider the version and the coverage of the acetabulum. In these cases, I very like to do a CT animation to get a, a better understanding of how this hip um, performs in, in the whole range of motion. And it's also very important if the patient doesn't present with this typical intoing. I like to measure the tibial torsion because if I would do a correction of the anti-torsion, uh, maybe then um, I, I will get, I will not consider that maybe also the tibia um, um, would correct a part of the, of the of the problem. And then when I do the, the derotation, uh, then the, the patient will have a problem with the position of the foot. So if the patient is symptomatic, I always ev evaluate osteotomy. A subtrotteric osteotomy or a hip arthroscopy in, uh, in isolated torsions or a surgical hip dislocation, intratrochanteric osteotomy, and even a PAO in more complex deformities. So this is a, a first case, a 24 year old female with pain in the left hip. Uh, she has a high acetabular antiversion, uh, lateral uh, coverage of 30 uh, degrees and the posterior and anterior labor and degeneration that we saw in the MRI. Measuring the torsion with a Murphy method, she had fem uh, 45 degrees femoral anti-torsion. So in cases like this, uh, you can just perform uh, a subtrochanteric osteotomy. Uh, I like to do a surgical hip dislocation in addition because then I have all the possibilities to treat any labor and de degeneration. It's very easy to do a labor reconstruction all in the same operation. And in this case, we just used a normal 4-5 LCP plate. This is a second case, also female uh, patient, pain left hip with a borderline hip dysplasia and she has a, a valgus hip. Um, in this case, it's a very high femoral antitorsion of 85 uh, degrees. And so here it's clear that we would have to perform a little bit more complex operation to not only correct the high antitorsion, but also to correct the valgus and also in addition treat the borderline dysplasia. So in this case, we did the intertrochanteric variation and derotation also uh, through a surgical hip dislocation. And in these cases, we like to use the pediatric hip plate. 
Now, if we have uh, patients with a retroversion or a decreased femoral antitorsion, the range of motion typically will present with an excessive external rotation and a decreased internal rotation. Uh, the patients present just with a basic typical FIA symptoms and a very positive anterior impingement test. So the, the impingement um, is aggravated by the, the retroverted femur. Uh, and so it's a, it's a risk here if you just do a normal FI surgery open or with a hip arthroscopy um, that we tend to over-resect the cam deformity because when we test intraoperatively, we want to have a normal range of motion. And to achieve this, uh, it would often require a very large resection on the pro proximal um, head-neck junction. So we have to evaluate if the impingement can be treated just with a cam resection. And this depends on the amount of the cam deformity, on if there's an acetabular retroversion present and the amount of the missing femoral antitorsion. And if we believe that we can treat it by just removal of the cam, I like to just perform hip arthroscopy first, then uh, re-evaluate the patient, see how he does. And as we've heard before, it can happen that after one or two years, the patients will remain symptomatic and then we'll have to evaluate to perform an osteotomy. But if we evaluate that we probably cannot treat the problem just with a cam resection, then I usually perform a surgical hip dislocation to the cam resection and would perform, uh, in addition, a subtrochanteric antiverting osteotomy and just treat all the, 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 the degeneration that we'd see in the patients in these cases, so all the labrum and uh, the cartilage problems. So this is such a patient, 36-year-old male, pain in the right hip, a severe cam, and he has an acetabular uh, version, uh, and he has a very reduced femoral antitorsion. So in this case, I perform a surgical hip dislocation with a subtrochanteric antiverting osteotomy, uh, at the same time a cam resection, and then plated it with a pediatric hip plate. Of course, you could also do a hip scope first or after and do the osteotomy later if you prefer. So in conclusion, torsional deformities of the femur are very important, they're common, and we also always have to consider that patients that are symptomatic with the anterior posterior impingement to always measure the femoral uh, antiversion and the acetabular version, and then check for um, any possible treatment. In-depth clinical analysis is very important, and you can perform the treatment stepwise or combine treatment. Uh, we have very powerful tools at hand in hip preserving surgery, we can perform hip arthroscopy. I still very much like to perform surgical hip dislocations, gives me a lot of options in treating these hips. Uh, we can use per subtrochanteric femoral osteotomies depending on what we want to treat, how we want to treat it. And we always have to consider also performing acetabular reorientations. Thank you very much. Thanks, uh, thanks very much, uh, Lorenz. That's, uh a number of excellent talks uh, around this uh, around this topic. Um, we're now going to to move into a Q and A uh, section, and I know uh, uh, we have a couple of attendees who've already submitted on the Q and A line. And thanks to Caroline uh, for addressing those. Um, if anyone else has any uh, questions, uh, please send them through. Um, because I might ask a question to my whole panel to start with, if that's okay. Um, we, we saw with, I guess we've understood over the last you know five years in particular since the Lurch paper, the, the importance of at least assessment uh, of, of femoral version. It, we, Caroline and, and George have spoken about some of the challenges of, of clinical and radiological reliability. 
Um, I'd ask each of the four panel members for any patient presenting with impingement who is potentially having surgery, uh, does every patient uh, receive a three-dimensional imaging in the form of a uh, pelvic-specific rotational CT uh, in your institutions, uh, irrespective of whether they're at one end of the spectrum, uh, the high highly antiverted, potentially dysplastic female, all the way through to uh, the potentially uh, retroverted, stiffer male. So I just go through with everyone. So does everyone receive a CT? Um, and what uh, parameters are you uh, are you looking at in particular? Caroline, can I start with you? Yes, thank you. So I do routinely get a CT rotational profile on all my patients, whether they're dysplastic or impingement. Um, partly because I would routinely get a CT to assess the osseous anatomy anyway. And I think as part of, I've already talked about the inaccuracies of, inaccuracies of clinical examination, but the radiological examination helps add to that. So in building the picture, I'll also just take a slice through the distal femur so that I can assess my femoral version at the same time. And George, could I ask uh, you, in spite of some of the, the different uh, the variation of measure, measuring uh, torsion. And that concerns me because I'll be looking at my department and uh, having a closer assessment of how exactly we're measuring it. Um, you, is that a routine part of your assessment? Have you liaised with your radiology department uh, to get the information you want? Uh, that's that's a great point. Uh, thank you for the question. Number one, all the patients uh, that are surgical candidates get, um, get a three-dimensional CT. We're actually using... The protocol that was originally described from uh, the HSS group. So it's really only associated with uh, the equivalent radiation of two x-rays. And it provides great uh, information, including a three-dimensional reconstruction. So it's really of use uh, for uh, arthroscopic surgery and amrastabular impingement uh, without, with, uh, in addition to any femoral version uh, parameters. Now, we're at the moment doing an interesting study because as part of femoral versions, we, we went to the radiology department and we asked five different radiologists to give us femoral version measurements. And we didn't really tell them about all the different techniques. And they all provided slightly different uh, measurements because there was differences and incon inconsistencies what methods they were using as part of their training. And all of a sudden, you saw wide variability in the reports. And then some of them would use the epicondylar axis and some of them would use the posterior condylar axis on the knee. And it's, the epicondylar axis uh, gives much greater variability as well. So it's, I think you just have to measure, you, you, you can't uh, rely on other people's uh, measurements without having communicated with them on, on um, what is consistent and what measurement you want to use. Bob, what are you doing at your institution? Does everybody get a 3D CT? Oh, yeah. So... Uh... I agree uh, wholeheartedly with the others. Uh, years ago, it used to be a lot of radiation, like getting 200 x-rays. Now it's like getting two x-rays. And we really love the ability to measure not only femoral version, acetabular version, size of the cam lesion, and we do tibial torsion in all patients. Because if you're going to do a derotation, you'd like to know what that is. You want to make sure they don't turn into Charlie Chaplin with a very external uh, foot progression angle. So yes, we, we do it routinely. 
So I think would it be fair to say that uh, everybody gets three-dimensional imaging? I'm, I'm sure, Lorenz, in your institution, you're getting 3D CTs and, and MRIs, uh, no? No, not regularly. We do the uh, the MRIs with the, with the knees included and then just perform CT scans if we want to animate them, but this is just rare cases. So most of the patients will just get an MRI. Okay, but, um, but, but you're getting slice. But you're getting a slice of the knee, so you you yes. You so know. that's always included, also with the traction. But I totally agree uh, that you really have to communicate with your radiologist and just define, you know, how you want to have it done and how you want to have it measured. In my case, we're using the Murphy method, but it's not so important. I think it's just to really be consistent and just always, you know, talk about just your your angles that you want to use or that you want to publish on in, in your uh, in your institution. But for me, right. in most of the cases, the the, radiology, the the reconstructed MRI is sufficient to measure the anti-torsion. And Vic, we really also like the ability, if we want to do a 3D motion analysis, it's real easy to dump the CT into, into the uh, software package and do that. We don't do that in all cases, but just ones where we're kind of um, trying to figure out what the best treatment is. Okay. So would it be yeah, fair to for our audience that uh, the panel agrees that we need uh, some form of three-dimensional imaging with cuts at the knee and potentially the tibia as well, whether it's an MRI or a CT, so that we actually are able to get the version or torsion, whichever part of the world you're in, uh, and the tibia uh, rotation sorted before you actually start treating these patients. Would that be a fair statement? Okay. And yes. secondly... Secondly, uh, everybody uses different methods of measuring a version and uh, is the, the outcome of our paper was potentially we need a global consensus on what we should be using as the method for measuring version based on the pathology as well. And I think uh, George highlighted that uh, in, his, in his talk. George, what, coming back to you, what, what was the thought process between uh, choosing one method for one condition and another method for another condition? Uh, thank you, because that's a great question. Um, to be honest with you, I had to go back to some very clever people called engineers. And uh, and then especially engineers that we've worked with in the past about um, uh, about femoral impingement mechanics and dysplasia. Um, and I explained to them the problem. We went through various CT scans. We're trying to uh, think about it with greater detail. And, um, and, and they posed to me, uh, to, to me sort of uh, basic principles of, uh, on one aspect, you're, you're thinking about uh, bony contact, uh, which is what happens with the femoral impingement and perhaps retrotorsion or retroversion. Uh, but on the other aspect, you're, you're trying to think of uh, limb mechanics, muscle attachments. And that's why the, in their mind, uh, that, that, was, uh, that was a difference. And, and to me, that made sense. And what also made sense is that obviously with uh, with an arthroplasty hat, uh, with my practice, um, the Murphy methods makes more sense uh, on that front. And it's it's commonly used. It's a bit of a long answer, but really I relied on people uh, with greater biomechanic principles than myself. Thank you. We have a question from Ignatius that I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, which which talks about the... the uh, the symptoms in pa why are all patients who um, are at extremes of version don't necessarily get symptoms. I I'm, Bob and Lorenz, you presented similar scenarios. It's that 
that patient, generally a male with low uh, femoral uh, femoral version that uh, we would traditionally treat perhaps uh, with hip arthroscopy and impingement surgery. And now with more understanding and information, we're concerned about uh, the impact of that and potential failure. At what point do we make that cutoff? We're not dogmatic with numbers, but Bob, you presented your case that had to come back after two years, which some might argue is a, you know, uh, we, with hindsight, maybe should have been rotated first. In that male who presents with classic impingement and, you know, borderline low uh, version, how are you making an assessment as to whether we go for a, at least theoretically, lower morbidity procedure uh, with hip arthroscopy and impingement surgery versus uh, being uh, uh, more uh, open to uh, an osteotomy as a indexed procedure? Um, I wish I could give you an exact answer. Um, I think if it's very low, if it's very severe retroversion, minus 15, minus 20, and there's a cam lesion, I don't think you're going to be able to get away with that with just resecting the cam lesion. I mean, we see you do get some increased range of motion. You know, whenever we do an arthroscopic osteochondroplasty, you do get some a little bit of increased um, internal rotation, but it's nothing like what you get with a derotation osteotomy. I, I, I tell our, res, our fellows that it's like you get more bang for your buck. You can rotate 15, 20 degrees, and it's just amazing how much more range of motion you get uh, by doing that. Um, so if it's very severe retroversion, Anacam will we'll do both. The one guy I presented, he was minus 15 on one and minus two. We thought we'd at least get away with the minus two. And uh, it turned out he eventually needed both done. So, um, you know, nobody likes to go through a procedure, even though an arthroscopic procedure with the rehab time off and everything else, and then need to come back for another surgery. So, um, it, it's a tough call. And like I said, maybe with AI or something like that, or more modeling, um, 3D modeling, maybe we'll ha have a better answer. But Bob, in, what's, what's the cutoff? Are you, are you prepared to do an arthroscopy as an initial one if you've got uh, above zero and below yeah. zero, you go for an osteotomy first? Would yeah, that I think be... That I think that's fair or even, you know, even low negative, you know, if it's like, you know, minus five and above, then we'll usually consider an osteotomy. I'm mean, consider the arthroscopy first with the caveat, you know, if it's, if you're still impinging and you're still having pain, we may need to come back, but they appreciate that. They, um, people would love it if they can get away with an, with an outpatient procedure instead of the, uh, instead of the big whack. And Lawrence in Switzerland, what what's your what's your thought process there? You do a surgical hip dislocation for everybody. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it's a bit like with the dis dis discussion displays and the uh, severe cases. It's easy when you have minus ten, you will not get off with just a uh, camera section. But the, the bit more borderline cases, like say as you mentioned, two or five degrees, there I think it's important to see the range of motion the patient has, and it's like always an impingement. Uh, surgery we have patients with a large defect a large cam and they're hard asymptomatic you know so it's really about to the clinical examination and they have a patient with only five degrees but a very very low range of motion i'd rather go for maybe an osteotomy 
and I can have a patient with an eight degree or, or two degrees and he has a good range of motion or better and I will just do a hip arthroscopy. So it's really, I think above, somewhere in come in the range of five degrees, I maybe would consider an osteotomy and above, I surely just do hip scope first and, and see how he does. And because as long as mentioned, it, it's important to consider the acetabulum too. So we always look at the combined version, you know, the McKibben index, adding the two together. Um, if there's more uh, acetabular antiversion, you may be able to get away with just the arthroscopic alone. Absolutely. And this is the clinical testing. You know, the clinical testing will show you a little bit the whole dynamics of this hip and show you how the, the acetabulum also interacts with the femur. Our, our audience Caroline, is... could I ask... Well, Sorry. go ahead, Pete. No, no I was just going to say, Caroline, I'd just like to, uh, if it's okay, uh, and I know I'm not sure how we're going for time, Laura, just uh, segue to yourself. There's been a couple of questions in the younger population, uh, adolescents in particular, um, uh, on the uh, on the Q&A. Um, what is your uh, experience in, in the symptomatic uh, adolescent, or perhaps, you know, fifth, 14, 15, 16 year old, uh, still with open, albeit closing growth plates. Um, how, is, what, what's your, your process in terms of extent of investigation and management uh, in that impinging, uh, potentially impinging uh, adolescent? Yep, so I answered one of the questions on text. Sorry, I didn't realize that everyone didn't see it, but I, I do actually see a lot of patients boys especially who have come through as children saying their legs hurt get discharged come back their legs hurt and then they get to adolescence and if I see them and pick up that they're retroverted it kind of fits together that this kind of vague leg pain is coming from their impingement from their retroversion what I said to the comment on the question was that I would always try to wait until skeletal maturity before addressing any kind of rotational problem. That's kind of what I've always um, been taught, that there's so much still changing, even if their torsional profile isn't changing. Depending on the stage of skeletal development, they may still be undergoing secondary ossification at the acetabulum. But there's also a lot of soft tissue changes happening still, uh, muscle bulk, posture. And I think it's important to wait as long as possible before treating that. And so I wouldn't get, I do get CTs for those patients if I'm going to operate on them, but I would wait until we were at the stage where I was going to operate on them before I would investigate them further. And that's the same with all my patients that I only do the imaging once I'm making my preoperative plan. I base it on my clinical assessment before then. There are lots of questions coming in from the audience. So we'll take a few of them and these are like a quick fire one. So we'll just pick up any of the faculty and, and ask them based on based on your experience. So Lawrence, this one is for you. Uh, this one comes from Look. Uh, in view of this information, how much of an intraoperative motion testing uh, worth uh, to test your impingement correction? In other words, should you be overcorrecting your camp, but presumably that's what I'm understanding, to compensate for torsional problems? Or should you just resect as normal and then rely on the osteotomy? Yeah, thank you. I think this is a very relevant question because by resecting the cam, uh, you have to really, I, I believe, be cautious with overcorrecting because you will you will cause this apple bite situation and this will this will be really bad for the function of the labrum. And I really like to just to, to get a spherical femoral head 
and I like to test it through the whole range of motion. And I want not to impinge, but I, I don't want a too large distance to the labrum just to get the suction seal still performing. And if this doesn't, you know, allow me for a say 30 degrees internal rotation, this is exactly the point when we then have to discuss some sort of osteotomy. And that's okay. the reason why I, in some cases where I, I don't really know if I can do it uh, with scope, I like to do it this location because then I can do it all at the same time. I can perform the, the cam a resection and test the, the rotation. And if necessary, just do the osteotomy at the same time. Perfect, thanks. Uh, and hope, look, that answers your question. So basically the, the uh, pragmatic answer is do not over-resect there. Uh, Caroline, this one is possibly for you. What is the approach to a patient with reduced femoral torsion or retroverted hips, but walks with a neutral or internal foot progression? So clinically, okay, so yeah. Yeah, so um, I think I have had patients where I've been worried about doing the femoral rotation about their gait pattern. We obviously, um, Professor Bule talked about making sure that you look at the tibia and you also have to look at the foot um, because they may have metatarsus adductus that's causing them to walk with their foot turned in even though they've got retroversion at the femur. So you have to think about the whole limb. Um, we're really fortunate that we have access to the gate lab. So having the patient go through the gate lab, um, and obviously not everybody has that um, facility, but it, it is quite helpful in understanding why they walk the way that they do. Um, but you have to just think about with the segment that you're correcting, what that's going to do to the distal segments and whether you need to do anything to compensate for that. They, often the patient will, if you're correcting, for example, 15 degrees, they'll accommodate their gait to to continue to walk with their feet facing forward but the question is whether that's then going to cause pain at a distal joint so you do have to consider it perfect thank you very much caroline hope that answers your question i'll go on to bob uh bob the question for you is in which cases would you recommend derotating osteotomy of the distal femur would you consider that at all um, you know, there are uh, papers that have reported on that. I think it's it's another way to do it. Um, I'm, I've am i always done it proximally and just uh, happier with, uh, with that approach, especially, I mean, you could, if you do it distally, you're most likely going to want to use a plate. And because my preference is intramedullary rotting, I just find antegrade rotting a much easier way to do it. Cool. Thanks, Bob. And one for you as well, George, so that you don't feel left out. Uh, in rotational osteotomies of the femur, what value does the version of the lesser trochanter have? Because you did the radiology talk. Any any view on that? Um, so obviously, it's, um, it's a value and it's something that we learn from uh, medical school and an orthopedic residency. But um, apart from an indication of a symmetry and how somebody holds uh, the leg, I wouldn't uh, give it much greater value with regards to the absolute measures. It's something that one can use uh, intraoperative um, as a comparison, but um, absolute values are probably based on axial imaging or uh, the 3D reconstructions. I wouldn't give it much more than that. It's it's uh, more external rotate, more more or less a trough is uh, increased uh, external uh, rotation of the leg, but nothing more than that. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, George. 
So I think time is passing by. We're probably uh, nearing the end of this. Now, before we go, we'll ask a really, really um, a pleasure to have such excellent faculty on uh, the webinar to share their experience. But before you all go, one top tip uh, on this topic for our audience. And we'll start with uh, we'll start with Caroline. Thank you, Vikas. Um, so the only thing that I didn't mention much in my talk was about assessing the whole range of movement, so your arc of movement. So we had one patient that had had a femoral rotation as an adolescent in another country come over to us and had developed rapidly developed osteoarthritis in her hip, and she'd had a correction of femoral antiversion, but um, I think the surgeon hadn't looked at the acetabulum and she had a, um, a profunda tripe hip and a deep socket with a narrow range of movement, and I think that had contributed to the mechanics of her hip rapidly deteriorating. So I think you have to think about the whole arc of movement. Brilliant. Thanks, Caroline. We go on to you, Bob. One top tip. Um, <clears throat> I, just so important to make sure you pay attention to the version. I've seen a number of patients who've been uh, proposed to have an arthroscopic procedure for a cam lesion and you check the range of motion and they have an incredible amount of internal rotation, maybe 30, 40 degrees. So there's a cam lesion, but it's not impinging. And the problem is their excessive femoral antiversion and it's, and it's very frequently missed. So um, I love it that people are doing CT scans and including the distal femur on their MRI scans. Very important to, to make note of that. Thanks, Bob. George? One top tip from you. Um, always read version, uh, as mentioned by Dr. Rulli, and um, and be consistent with the readings and be consistent with the literature when you read about it. I think that will be match um, what uh, what my talk was. Thank you. Thanks. And Lorenz, what about yourself? One top tip. Yeah, I think the most important is really to to understand the whole hip, not just focus on one point. That's first. And second, uh, there's a lot of options, treatment options, and many of our colleagues, they're really excellent, maybe in hip scope, but maybe a little bit less in whatever acetabular corrections or nailing of the femur. So I think it's good to, to work in a team, have friends and ask, you know, especially when you start, make sure to understand what you treat and, and you know, get all the options. Thanks very much, Ryan. So this is a, a very sort of a niche topic within uh, within the hip preservation world. And when we thought of this initially, I was wondering whether we'll probably have about 30 to 40 people attending. So to see more than 155 people attending this webinar globally is, is very reassuring and heartening as well. So thank you to the audience uh, for attending. Thank you to our esteemed faculty for some fantastic talks and sharing our experience. And I'll hand over to Pete, my partner in crime, to close this webinar. Thanks, Pete. Thanks very much, everybody. Thanks, Vikas, for uh, putting this together. Um, those of you who are on the webinar chat, you'll see uh, a number of uh, items from uh, Laura. Um, for those of you interested in trauma, there's uh, another event on the 12th of January looking at proximal humeral frac uh, fractures. And also, uh, first, uh, Isakos. Uh, AOS uh, specialty day on the uh, 16th of February in San Francisco uh, at AOS uh, where ISCOS is partnering with AANA um, 
which I think will be a fabulous day. Uh, but I echo uh, Vikas's sentiments. Uh, we've had uh, four fantastic panelists from around the world. It's brilliant to collaborate. Uh, and I think uh, Lorenz's final comment is something I'd absolutely like to echo. Uh, the best and I guess most valuable part of my hip preservation practice has been uh, the little team we have here in Perth where we uh, have uh, have had different uh, training. We have different interest areas, but we collaborate very closely on cases and uh, I would encourage you all to do so as our skill sets are very diverse. Uh, but your attendance at this webinar shows that... Uh, uh, there's a level of interest in uh, in, in this topic, which is uh, which is growing and ever evolving. So, thank you all for your time. Uh, good morning to everyone who's with me in Australia, and good evening to everyone in the uh, uh, in uh, in Europe. Um, and we look forward to uh, seeing you next time. Thanks very much. Thanks to all the organizers. Thanks all. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you.